Hi there, voice teachers. It's Nikki from Full Voice Music. Thank you so much for joining me today. Our podcast today, I'm talking to my good friend and my yoga teacher, Steve Farrell. Steve is a yoga and meditation teacher, and he has some great insight into mindfulness and staying present in the moment. And he shares some really great strategies to help us keep our focus and to help us help our students keep their focus in the lesson as well. Now, I have to warn you, you'll hear in the podcast, there's a couple of times where Steve is almost laughing. And that is because while Steve is talking, I'm actually chasing cats away. The cats were being very persistent. So Steve is laughing at me as I run around the room chasing away cats. And you'll also hear my furnace kick on in the background. That's what happens when you have a home studio. So sit back and enjoy. This is Nikki, and this is the Full Voice Podcast. Welcome to the Full Voice Podcast, resources for private, classroom, and choral music programs. And here's your host, Nikki Loney. So we're in the recording studio, a.k.a. my basement, and I am with my really great friend, Steve Farrell. Hi. And Steve Farrell is uh, my yoga teacher, hmm. and uh, I'm thank you so much for coming today. My I've pleasure. been looking forward to speaking to you uh, for uh, several reasons, and uh, I just want to set this up for listeners who might be wondering why my yoga teacher is on a podcast for voice teachers. Singing. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of obviously um similarities in what we do mm, we're, we're coaching people using breath and yep. but when i started taking your yoga classes it was over a year ago mm-hmm. i immediately uh I, I realized that your approach is different as it would be for any instructor absolutely but i loved your classes because you were always talking about mindfulness and and really paying attention and really listening to your body rather mm-hmm. than just throwing yourself into a posture and a lot of the things you said I would take immediately to my students with great success good good and I was like this guy knows something (laughs) (laughs) so I'm so excited to to uh, talk with you today Um, now you're also a professional drummer so you're a musician pseudo professional pseudo professional I did go to school for for music but But you've transitioned into yoga and and meditative studies uh, uh, teaching so can you tell everybody how you transitioned from musician to sure (laughs) (laughs) can we give it us that I I think it's I think it's a story that a lot of musicians have, especially when they go to school, is that, uh, so I grew up playing drums from the age of 12, um, and then I uh, sort of got as far as I could teaching myself, listening to the tracks and figuring out how to play them, and then I started studying with uh, a guy named Bobby Santos, who has gone to Mohawk mm-hmm. in Hamilton, and he he knew I didn't like my job at the time, I was working in a factory building school buses, mm. Um and trying to be a semi full-time musician at the same time um which was very arduous trying to like work 10-hour shifts and then play gigs in toronto till three in the morning and then getting two hours sleep and going and doing again so he convinced me to go to mohawk Mm. um which i loved so there for three years uh i did pretty well Mm -hmm. it was it was a really great program i love the teachers Mm -hmm. Uh, but when I got out of school, like everybody knows when they get out of music school, you've only got a few options. You either try to get in a full-time band, mm-hmm. you um, try to get gigs in studio or right. become more of like a, a backup musician, mm-hmm. uh, or the other option is to teach music lessons. Right. Um, and I know some people sort of do all, all of them. Of it. 
Uh, and then I got to the point where I didn't want to teach drum lessons full time because I didn't like teaching to people who didn't want to learn. Oh. That was my biggest thing was mm -hmm. I didn't want to teach to people that didn't want to learn. Um, and at the same time, a couple of the bands that I were in were falling apart. Mm. And then I was like, well, what else do I really like to do with my life? And at the time I was bodybuilding, mm. um, sort of semi bodybuilding. I never competed, but I was always interested in weightlifting and, mm -hmm. um, its effects on body. And so I became a personal trainer. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then I was in that industry for about six years. Wow. And, uh, for maybe anybody that's listening to the podcast doesn't know about bodybuilders, you basically walk around in pain all the time. Oh. Because you're always working so hard. Right. The pain just migrates from body part to body part. Oh. And then my wife, who had studied a little bit of yoga in Taiwan when she taught English there, was like, I'm going to take you to a yoga class. I think you'll really like it. Mm. And a uh, very cliched yoga story. I walked out of my first class and the sun was shining brighter <laughs> and the birds were singing louder and my steps felt lighter and somehow the Hamilton air smelled cleaner. <laughs> However, that's possible. Wow. And I leaned over to my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time. And I said, I'm going to practice this forever. Like this is, wow. I love this. You had that moment. That was, it was, and a lot of people have that moment. And it was just, a. Uh, Upon reflection, it was an increased sense of awareness that I had mm -hmm. that the sun was not shining brighter because I practiced yoga and the birds were not singing louder. <laughs> I just had an increased sense of awareness and attention of myself and my surroundings. And that's what led me into yoga. Wow. And then uh, it just so happens that I got really whenever I find something that I like, I dive in head first. Um, and You're so just obsessed about it. Yeah. And so within the first three months, I was enrolled in my first teacher training program. Well, that's and, and then you've never looked back, never looked back. And then you've also moved into a lot of meditative yeah. studies as well. So yeah. tell us a little bit about those. So I started meditating when I first started practicing yoga. Um, I was doing my teacher training and studying with Katie, who owns De La Soul, mm -hmm. um, which is where I work now. And I read a book called The Seven Spiritual Laws of Yoga from a man named Deepak Chopra. Mm. And it had a lot of good practices in it. Um, and at the time, I was kind of also unhappy being a personal trainer. Right. Because um, the more yoga I studied, it turned out that the philosophies and the values that I really started to resonate with and adopt didn't match the philosophies and the values of the personal training studio I was working at. Mm. Um, which was basically just kick the crap out of people get them in, get their money and push them out. Right. And so I started meditating as a way to, how do I want to say this? Find more calm in a situation that was very chaotic. Mm. Um, but it was also interesting that I chose to start meditating at the personal training studio that I worked at. So oh. when I didn't have clients, I would go into a back room that was a karate room at night and I would sit and I would chant. Hmm. Um, and even my boss would come in and hear me chanting and like berate or make fun of me while I was meditating, oh. which is really funny. Okay. Um, I, I just took it for a grain of salt because he didn't know anything about yoga and meditation. Right. He thought it was all like floofy girly stuff. So, oh. uh, so that's when I started meditating. Um, so I've been meditating and practicing for about a decade now Wow. and uh, never looked back. We've had some really interesting conversations, like usually after class or before class, and um, 
talking about mindfulness and, and being in the moment of, of and it is difficult, mm-hmm. especially if you're doing something like something repetitive. Yeah. So I know, and, and I'm just going to be honest here. And if teachers are listening to this and, and you're saying to yourself, that never happens to me, you're a liar. <laughs> but, um, you know, you're in, you see a lot of students a day, private one-on-one or even in a classroom. And you're taking them through technical exercises, mm-hmm. right? So you're going up and down the scale. And then all of a sudden you look down at the piano and you think, what key am I in? <laughs> and then you stop and your student looks at you. Oh, we're in E flat. Sorry about that. Yeah. Right. And, and then you realize, okay, I'm not listening to my student. How can we get more in the moment and really pay attention? What are some strategies? So there's a lot of different techniques that people use. Right. Um, but my go-to is, and the good thing for vocal teachers is, my go-to is the breath. Right. Uh, that as much as there is a lot of philosophy around yoga and meditation, whether you're t- coming from more of a yogic perspective, or for me these days is more of like a Dharma or a Buddhist perspective as far right. as meditation is concerned, is that you can't, you can't feel the breath anywhere other than the present moment. Mm. And so one of the keys really is is to start to recognizing when you are distracted or disconnected mm-hmm. i think that's really the first step um that uh that there's always a lot of talk about mindfulness and paying attention 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 but it's difficult for somebody to pay attention when they don't even recognize that they're distracted exactly right some right. people go through their whole lives fully distracted and don't recognize it until it's like almost too late and they're like mm-hmm. oh I've been distracted for decades. <laughs> I need to get my crap together and actually right. pay attention to the people around me. And so for me, um, in the beginning, it was really about the breath is a good tool to come back, but that I was constantly noticing through the teachings that I was getting from my teachers is recognizing when I'm not paying attention, like really mm-hmm. being able to sort of pinpoint that, which is exactly what you said, where it's like, you're playing scales for people singing and then all of a sudden you realize that like maybe you're playing in C major and you're supposed to be playing in E flat minor. Yeah, and just, like I always say in class, it's like the scenario of driving to work for 20 minutes and then you right. get to work and you're like, how the hell how did, did I get, I get here? there? Right. How did this happen? Um, <laughs> when there's, especially for me, because in classes I always talk about driving too. Yes, you do. Is that <laughs> like, especially with driving is one of those situations where people should be really paying attention. Right. right? That playing right. piano, you should be paying nobody's going to die you should be paying attention but it's not life or death right uh, as opposed to driving <laughs> on driving, the 403 like then then it needs to be a little bit more serious uh, but i think that the first step is just recognizing that you're getting distracted right and then again for me it's just a matter of when i recognize that i'm distracted i just come back and feel a couple breaths that's it mm-hmm. and that's been my key strategy for the past decade is that the the breath is always the starting point mm-hmm. and i think it's important like for me when i teach yoga i think it's important because there's always this emphasis on breath in yoga that the breath is really important but it's more just like a doorway mm. that it's a good place to start but that coming back to the breath if you're doing scales and somebody's singing with you is that the breath is the doorway back into the scale Mm. Or if you're singing, the breath is the doorway back into the act of singing. I like that. Right? Like, it's even when I teach a class, I can get fully disconnected from a class. So I've, you get distracted. Absolutely. Yeah. I have I have said, inhale, lift your right leg, exhale, sweep <laughs> your right foot forward, bring your left foot flat. 
a billion times probably right. in my career so far. And that becomes the difficulty is that, like you said, the more repetitive things get, mm -hmm. the more mundane they get, and the easier it is to disconnect from them. Now, how can we help our students? Because our students are not in the room either. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, like you'll be going through those exercises, whatever they may be, and you'll make a correction to the student, or you'll say something simple like, okay, for voice, te for voice teachers or voice teachers, you would say, okay, let's change, switch the vowel. Yeah. And then they don't switch the vowel, they just keep plowing through, and you know, that they're not there, <laughs> yeah. you know, and they'll be like, what? Oh, oh, right, sorry. I think one of the things, again, to come back to, and I say this in class all the time, is recognize that you're distracted. Okay. And I think for a teacher, it becomes the teacher's job to even help the student recognize that they're distracted. Because, mm. again, like, especially with kids these days, mm. kids these days, <laughs> um, is that there's so many different things to distract them as opposed to when I was a kid or when you were a yeah. kid. Um, like, there wasn't, you weren't thinking about Twitter, you weren't waiting for the next time to get on Facebook, you weren't thinking about your Instagram pictures, um, you weren't wondering about Pokemons or high school highs. You were being highs bullied or, online. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and so to teach somebody how to recognize that they're distracted, I think is a really good tool. So even when you said that the person that's singing, you tell them to switch the vowels and then they say, oh, oh, I'm sorry. That's, that's a good opportunity for the teacher to be, do you recognize, and without being condescending, which sometimes it's easy to get into oh, the teacher yeah. role and Sarcasm be condescending, Sarcasm and guilt, right? uh, those are my techniques. <laughs> and those, those are our parents' techniques, right? <laughs> Sarcasm and guilt. <laughs> Because um, you can't physically punish your students, so that's all you... Well... Well, mm, but, but to even... Um, to teach them to recognize that they're distracted. Mm -hmm. Can you recognize that you just got distracted there? That, And to even teach them to recognize that autopilot is possible. Because mm. I don't think that everybody recognizes... They know it intellectually, right. that it's a thing, mm -hmm. but people don't recognize that they do it. And And I think that's... A really big part is to take the time to notice like even when I'm working in privates and my students aren't paying attention with their movements and I'm mm -hmm. asking them to do a very precise movement and they're thinking about when the movement's gonna be done or they're thinking about all of the thoughts that they have about how they want to get the movement right then they're never actually in the movement and so I have to call them on it constantly a lot of it is with what I do yeah as far as movement is concerned, is to get them feeling their body. Okay. And part of that is the breath. Right. Um, and so let's say when I'm working with somebody on a physical level and they start moving their bodies, that if they're not really paying attention, the breath shows you that they're not paying attention. Oh. Which is really interesting to see how you can... I can see when somebody's really paying attention by not only how the movement is going, but by how the breath is moving through the body as the movement is happening. So let's say my go-to is seeing movement, mm -hmm. um, but your go-to is hearing sound. Yes. That if you're really in the room, you'll hear the difference in the way that the sound comes out. And so that becomes a good pickup. And because I don't have a lot of background on teaching vocalization, mm -hmm. but I, I have taken some vocal mm -hmm. instruction in the past when I was in school, um, that coming back to the feeling of things is really important because, and again, I say this in the class all the time, 
that if all you're coming back to is ideas and concepts and philosophies, then you're always in sort of like this esoteric place about how things happen Hmm. and that you're never actually in the action of how things happen. And so if a vocal teacher's, let's say, toolbox in their toolbox is diaphragmatic movement Mm. to teach their students how to really feel that. And when the teacher notices that they're not doing that, get them back into their bodies, Mm. right? Really back into the, the feeling of singing instead of just maybe even the hearing of singing. Like how do you deal with clients that you know they're in their head and they're thinking, like you said, they just want the, they just want the exercise to be over. For sure. Because you know that your singing students just want a song to be over. Absolutely. They just want this, this ear training exercise to be over. <laughs> I know all about ear training. <laughs> exactly, just, like, right? Just want just it to be get over with. done. And so, A, I think it's important to recognize that every student's different. Mm -hmm. Um, And the good thing about how the education system is working these days is we're actually starting to recognize that Mm. more and more and more is that not everybody learns the same. And even from my experience with yoga, not everybody feels things the same. And so it becomes the job of a teacher to really then begin to connect with Especially if a cue is not like, if, especially with cueing, if a cue is not landing, right, it's probably not the student's fault. Oh, I love although, that. Although, I love that. Although they are part of the responsibility of that, but that it becomes the job of the teacher. Teacher, we have to recognize to learn how to cue. And I don't want to use the term better, but have more cues in the toolbox. Okay. Right. Okay. That, uh, like I was telling you a story the uh, the other day about a woman who I was working with and every time that I was trying to cue movement for her, I was cueing the front side of her body. And right, it turned right. out that she didn't have a very good awareness about oh, okay. of the front side of her body, but she was very back body aware. So how did you recognize that this that the front instructions here weren't Because every time I tried to cue, so I I started with cues. I was cueing the way that I would with normal like everyday students. Okay. And then that wasn't working, so I tried a different cue. And then I tried a different cue. And then I tried a different cue. And then as I'm working with the student, I'm going through this interesting dialogue in my head about why these cue like, is this not working? Is it the student? Is it the cue? <laughs> and I very rarely like to put the onus on the student. Right. Um, especially in the context of the way that I work, because mm-hmm. I might be asking them to try to feel something that they've never felt before. And if they've never felt that before, then they don't know how to feel it. And so the inner dialogue that I was having in my head with this student was recognizing. So even in the moment, me recognizing, which is like me connecting just to these are the cues that I'm giving. What's similar about all of these cues that I'm giving? Oh, they're all geared towards front body awareness. Hmm. Um, and keeping in mind that I've been doing this for a while. Right. So it's it's easier for me to have that dialogue and to sort of troubleshoot as I'm working. Mm-hmm. And I had this revelation that I'm like, oh, all of these cues are front side body cues. What if I gave her a backside body cue? And so I gave her a backside body cue and she picked it up like that. Uh, and you as, made the connection. As soon as I cued backside body, she did exactly what I wanted her to do. And that was the key was it wasn't her, it wasn't her lack of awareness. It wasn't her inability to be intelligent and figure things out. Mm -hmm. It was 
my cue wasn't landing on her. And I couldn't force other cues to land on her. Mm. I had to pick the right cue. And that was really... That was a big aha moment for me. And that would never have happened if you weren't in the moment exactly. actually really watching it. Yeah. So so really it's it's our responsibility as teachers to be right there and watching. And then because that happens a lot and I've noticed that with mm. students where like even a simple instruction as you need to sing louder, sing this exercise louder, and nothing changes. And I'll say to them, did that exercise get any louder? And they'll smile. They go, no, you know, but then, but then it, it made me aware. It's like, well, you know, we need to, maybe they don't understand that more breath has to leave. Yeah. So you're going to use more breath and then it gets louder. Yeah. So, and I, I have to say without your classes, I wouldn't have been, I don't think I would have picked up on a lot of these subtle things. Within regards to me being able to, in the moment, mm -hmm. sort of troubleshoot something like working with front side body, back side body cues, you said something about uh, the inability or the lack of exploration within the practice. Right. And so I think that that's really important is that rather than trying to just get the job done, which mm. is sort of what we kind of do as a culture, Yep. Right? Um, whether you're talking about North American or you're talking about now, it's almost just like global culture, mm -hmm. is there is there's not a lot of exploration happening. Mm -hmm. um, it's just a lot of learn technique and get stuff done. Yeah. Get the job done, get the job done. And, and kind of maybe to our downfall is like the perfectionist quality where it's like get it done right the first time. <sighs> and so that really leaves no room for moving away from and coming back to mm. um that's part of what i do uh, especially with with yoga and i've learned this from a, a few different teachers that i've studied with is to really be okay with the uncertainty of things oh that's a tough one it really is that's really hard that's hard for a lot of yeah. us and and especially and no offense to let's say younger kids these days who maybe are a little bit more socially anxious about portraying something in front of a teacher or mm. their peers is that this front gets built up about, okay, this is what I need to do and I need to do it right. And if I don't do it right, that means I'm some sort of failure. Yeah. When, and again, we know this on an intellectual level, but maybe we don't have so much insight into it is that the, the practice involves the failure. Right. Boo, 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 boo. Right. Da, da, da. Oh, no, that wasn't quite it. Yeah. Right? Or even when I was in college learning, like, even just basics, like double C major scale, ascending and descending. <laughs> yes. Right. And as as a drummer. So for those of you that don't know, I'm a drummer. So I, <laughs> I didn't specialize in melodious instrument. Um, learning how to play piano that way, which was like very um, strict and you had to learn your scales and then you had to learn your keys. I, I was messing up a lot. Right. Lots of messing up. Mm -hmm. Especially when I had to take uh, being a right-handed dominant person and trying to play a C major scale <laughs> on the left hand and then trying to put the two of them together and then even trying to play them opposite directions. Like, that's crazy for me. Mm -hmm. But a lot, of my, a lot of my biggest mistakes were my, my biggest learning opportunity. Right. And again, we, we know this. Like... Mm -hmm. it, there's this isn't new to us right but that maybe it's not something that we practice right mm. and i think i think that's really one of the keys is the practice of 
uncertainty and the practice of failure. But how can we help them be more open to this exploration? What can we do? It, it, I think it really becomes, so let's say that that's a philosophy that people have. Right. Um, and I always like to draw the distinction between having a philosophy and actually having an insight into the philosophy. Because there's a difference between walking around, like let's say in the yoga world, <laughs> walking around and everybody's one. Oh God! We're all we're all one guys. We're all one. <laughs> yes. And then you go into Starbucks, and the girl behind the counter gets your order wrong, and you're like, "What the f? How how do you get this wrong? I I order the same thing every day. You know who I am. How did you? I asked for a grande and not a venti. Yeah. <laughs> and so, in that moment, the philosophy of oneness is there, but the practice of oneness is not there. And so, I I practice messing up. Okay. Yeah. And it's not that I, it's not that I practice slacking off. It's not that I use this philosophy as a way not to do things well, Mm -hmm. that I'm still doing things. Um, And for those of you that can't see, I'm going to do air quotes, (laughs) Um, that I'm doing things to the best of my ability, but that I'm not so attached to the result. And that's a difficult practice. That is really difficult. Right. That they're conscious about how how their self is being portrayed in front right. of other people. Right. Um, and this is why I love the breath in yoga, especially. Mm-hmm. And I say this in classes all the time is that the breath becomes a tool for the student to undercut the self-consciousness, mm. right? So it's like I do something wrong and then I get wrapped up in my head about how I could have done it right, how I'm going to approach it next time, mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. And you just, Go back to the breath and cut the dialogue. And not that you're going to take the role of a counselor or a therapist. But you know what? Private teachers, you, you do, do take that's that That's what role you do. You do. All the time. Right? Because you're working with people's self-esteem. Yes. Right? Yes, absolutely. And, and self-esteem is really a mind issue. Right? Yes. That it's not so much a body issue. It's a, it's even when we're talking about the body, it's a mind issue in relationship to the body. Right. Or with singers, it's a mind issue in relationship to how they think they're singing and how they think they should be singing. And so even to teach the kid um, to recognize that when they do, when they think that they do a bad job or when they do a bad job, right. that maybe they get too wrapped up in the thoughts about the bad job and that that thought about the bad job then follows them in to the next time they go to do oh, it that, does. that it task. Does. It, it's, it's right there. And then All they're the just anxiety. racked with nerves. Yep. And, yeah. What would be a simple meditative practice that that someone could try? So a really nice, simple one, um, counting breaths. And so the the simplicity of it... I never can't get past five. Which is okay that you can't get past five. (laughs) Because the goal of counting the breath is not to get to ten and then start back at one and then make your way to ten and start back to one. It's, It's just the practice of doing it, getting distracted, coming back. So when I, when I sit, like, so let's say I sat this morning for half an hour before my son got up, um, and uh, I always start with a little bit of chanting, and then for about the first five or so minutes of my practice, I count my breaths. Mm-hmm. And I, for the first few moments, I don't ever get to 10. Okay. Right? It's like... This makes me feel better. Yeah. Right? <laughs> to recognize that even somebody who's been meditating for a yes, while... I'm so, I feel still so ...still gets distracted. Better. So I start at one, and the way that I do it is that 
if I'm feeling my breath moving in and moving out, that I'll say, as I'm inhaling, I'll say to myself, one, one. So that's inhale and exhale. That's one breath. Two, two, three, three. Chocolate chip cookies. (gasps) Walking dead. What's for (laughs) breakfast? Oh, crap. I lost count. One, one. Two, two. And so, again, the goal is not the getting to 10. It's just just the practice of coming back. Um, And from a neuroscience standpoint, and and that's the... For as much as I love the esoteric philosophical parts of this practice, I'm very sciencey guy. Okay. Um, and the interesting thing about neuroscience and the advent of fMRI machines is that it shows us that we can see somebody being, air quotes, mindful or paying attention, and then you can see when they get distracted. Really? And then in the fMRI machine, you can see when somebody remembers to come back. And what's happening is, is that when somebody remembers to come back, which is uh, the the sort of brain network involved with that is known as the salience network, is that the salience network gets stronger and stronger and stronger the more that you practice coming back. Wow. So. So there is like a definite. There is data. There is data out there. There's hard data about sitting and just being in a meditative mindset whatever the philosophy is is just coming back coming back and that's the key is that wow because in in attentive practices it's like attention 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 mindfulness 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 but that there's not a lot of talk or even permission let's say to allow the recognition that getting distracted is part of that practice and that for me the most important part of that practice is the coming back because that's what strengthens the salience network is the coming back, coming back, coming Whenever back. I come back, I'm like, oh, Nikki, what is wrong with you? <laughs> yeah. There you are again. Yeah. Can't even count to five. Yeah. And I think it becomes the job of the teacher as well that, like, it's sort of this classical idea of the teacher is the hard ass, mm. right? Uh, even, in the, even in Zen lineages, it's like the teacher <laughs> is, oh, yeah, because you'll get hit with a stick if you're not paying attention. <laughs> but with the stick isn't meant to be malicious, it's meant to, to bring you back. And the, the key with that immediately is right back into the body. Right back into the body. Because oh, it hurts. It hurts. <laughs> that, that hurts. Ow, oh. that hurt. And then you're right back into the body. Um, but even, so it becomes a part of the teacher's job to sort of let go, I think, sometimes of like the hard ass. Right. Um, like I'm, I'm sure some of your, your listeners have watched the movie Whiplash. Have you yes. seen this? Right? I haven't, you know, I haven't, we haven't, haven't watched it? it. No, we've deliberately not watched it because <laughs> we had teachers like that in college and it was like, I don't, I don't want to relive that. But I hear it's great. I'll it is make... a good, it is a good film. Okay. I had to shut it off a couple times. Yeah. Because. Because if you went to music school, right? Oh yeah. You know. Right? Like, that there are teachers like teachers that. There's teachers like that. And, and the difficulty with a teacher like that is the, the side effect is the trauma that happened in right. that movie and the trauma that happens in a lot of teacher right. student scenarios. Mm-hmm. And so these days, like if a student gets off track, it's don't be a jerk about bringing them back. Like right. really like take their hand and bring them back. Mm-hmm. Um, because even even the research is showing these days, uh, guys like Dr. Alan Kasdan, who runs a parenting clinic in Yale, is the data is showing that positive reinforcement is really working right right positive reinforcement is there right that we respond way better to that as far as 
as far as changing behavior is concerned. Well, we I did an interview with uh, my friend Glory, who's a neurolinguistic. Oh, beautiful! Right, so yeah. she talks about the exact same thing. I think neurolinguistic uh, uh, practitioners know a lot of this stuff about being mindful yeah. because they're watching, they're watching how the child learns and how to communicate better. I mean, all of this is very similar. And they've got their mind on the data too, right? right. That it's like there's data out there to support all of this, right? And then her job really becomes to is to explore the data and then try to reinforce what the data is saying. Right. And it's, right? it's very similar. It's so fascinating, yeah. too. I mean, we really have more than one way to make connections with our kids. Absolutely. Do you have any other recommendations for teachers, like just to be like more mindful, more present, more... What, what would you... Yeah. What would you leave with everybody? So... And you're going to leave with one of my cats because they've been driving us nuts <laughs> through this entire podcast. I can't, I can't take a cat because my wife says that we can never have just as many cats as we do people in the house. So oh, you're stuck with them. Dang. We've already got two. They're parting gifts. We're never allowed, we're never allowed to be equal numbers or them, for them to overrule us. Gotcha. Okay, <laughs> that's, fair that's enough. our one rule about cats. Fair enough. So let's say when you go into the average yoga studio mm-hmm. and you walk into a room where you're going to be practicing and there's some soft music playing and uh like i know not everybody loves incense but there's probably some incense burning mm-hmm. um and you're you're greeted with a relatively personable attitude by the person at the front desk and by the teacher mm-hmm. and uh hopefully if it's a good teacher they really give you the impression that they're there with you okay and i really try to do this with my students whether i'm talking about group Mm-hmm. or I'm talking about privates, is that, and I know that we were talking about this yesterday, is to really set up the environment oh. to to settle the student into what's about to happen. Um, so you know me when I teach classes, I'm, I'm all about setup. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm all about this moment, and what we do in this moment is really the prep and the setup for the next moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and this... This for me is, I, like, I take this mostly from the Dharma teachings that I, I study or the Buddhist teachings that I study is that the what we do in this moment is just a setup for the next moment. Hmm. And so we were talking about this the other day as sort of maybe like a prep, is that maybe as a music teacher, um, once you get to know your students, what if the teacher puts on a piece of music that they know the student really likes, right? And then the student walks into the room and they hear a song that they like and there's already this connection that this is a space there's a song that i like playing um the teacher is there maybe there's a soft candle lit in the background um i i think the term in in yoga in sanskrit is is bhava which it basically means the vibe of things if you want your lessons to go successfully it's mm-hmm. about setting up the vibe for them to go successfully and you have to create the energy. Absolutely. So if you're having a rough day and you're all agitated and you're distracted, like you can't expect your students to be the person that no, comes in. No, because then your energy is going to affect yeah. their energy. Like right. We any musician knows this that anybody that you play with, right, especially right. in yeah. the music industry. Oh yeah. If you play with somebody who's a bit of a jerk, right? Then that That's kind of that tension comes into the relationship of playing the music. Right. Um. And so, like, even when I sit in the morning, mm-hmm. I have a little ritual that I do before, before I sit. 
So okay. I set up the vibe for the sitting practice. Mm. So I put my cushion on the floor. Um, if I'm awake enough, I actually do it the night before. Mm -hmm. So I lay out my cushion and then I do this thing where I put a little divot in it where I know that my, my sit bones are going to rest. Mm -hmm. And I have uh, a blanket that sits in front of me. So I smooth out the blanket. And before I sit every morning, which is more of a, a Zen practice, is I bow three times. Okay. Um, and the bowing has a certain attitude about it. And when I bow, I set up the attitude to prep me for my cushion. And there have been moments when I've just bowed three times, sat down, and then recognized that I wasn't even fully present for the setup. The bow. So then I get back up, hmm. and I bow three times, and then that is the reminder. That's the coming back, right? That's the reminder. Come back. Do it again. But again, it's really gentle. I'm not like, Steve, you're such an idiot. You need to, <laughs> you need to get your ass off the cushion, stop being a dummy, and bow three times again and really put yourself in the headspace that you need to be in. Right. It's more of like, oh, okay, I made a mistake. Mm -hmm. The failure. Right? I got distracted. Let's go back and do it again and be a little bit more intentional in the doing. Mm -hmm. And then, so I bow three times and then I sit down on my cushion. I count my breaths and I've really noticed just as an experiment, just as an exploration mm -hmm. that when I do disconnect from the bowing mm. and I get back up and I do it again from a really sort of compassionate standpoint and I come back down and sit, my sits are so much better. I have noticed without a shadow of a doubt that I am more aware and more, like you said, toolbox. Mm -hmm. I have more cues for my yeah. students because I'm watching them. Yeah. Because I'm, you know, I'm less concerned about playing the piano and I am like full on facing them and watching them. And, and I noticed that my students now know that nothing's getting by me yeah. and I'm not in autopilot. <laughs> yeah. Because I, I know sometimes I, as a student, I was happy that my teacher was not paying attention. So I really want to thank you for that. And, and I also wanted to tell you how much uh, you it's helped me with my son. So oh, my good. son is five. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and like any everybody else, busy life, you know, teaching and all my students and family life and all my schedule and everything and and I found myself like catching myself with Noah mm -hmm. where I'd be completely distracted and mm -hmm. he's talking to me and I think you know what I'm going to switch my focus and we have a much better relationship because of all the stuff you've taught me yeah. so I am thank you from the bottom of my heart my pleasure and uh Steve, thank you so much. I'm going to put up some links uh, and your information on our, our podcast page Great. Great. and uh, let people know more about you. Thanks. And you will, you know, see my downward dog. And I'll see you get distracted. <laughs> you and will. I'll, and I'll, and I'll be see like, you come back. Yeah. And I'll be like staring out the window and then yeah. you'll see me come back and I'll yeah. give you the thumbs up. Right. Well, thank you so much. And I, I know that this has been helpful for a lot of voice teachers and I'm probably going to have you back. Good, good. I'd love and to. And we'll talk I'd about some more techniques or, or, or maybe just, just, I don't know what other smoothies we should or shouldn't do. <laughs> Be this smoothie <laughs> yeah, episode. Absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you, Steve. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. You have been listening to the Full Voice Podcast. For more information and free teacher resources, please visit our website at www.thefullvoice.com. Made by Canoe Music. Canoe Music.ca. We are in my 
recording studio, aka basement, and my good friend Steve Farrell is with us. Hi. Hi, Steve. Hi. And I have to say, usually the basement is reserved for family only, but you've seen my downward dog. So right? you're family. I've right? adjusted your downward facing <laughs> dog. So. So. Um, okay, I'm taking off. Oh. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> he told you he was going to give you the cue. I told you I was going to. Sorry, honey. <laughs> Hey, this are we recording? We're recording now. Recording? Gosh, are you videoing too? Hey, everybody! Was that question scripted? <laughs> <laughs> All right, see you, hon. I'll see you. Take care, right. Sean. Don't leave for uh, lunch without me. I need a lift. All right, go. Goodbye. Okay, leave. Bye. <laughs> always, always. All right, so let's try that again. So editing out all of that.